hello there lovely people and welcome to another episode of Fuds and Film. This is our intermission episode for November, so that's our usual grab bag episode for the end of the month where we don't have a theme other than it's the stuff that we saw and fancied talking about. Introductions should probably be done, I guess. I'm Drew. Over there is not me, it's Scott. Well, hello. Let's dive in, I guess, Scott. We're going to look at a tale of a black exploitation star who yeah. I know entirely through red letter media videos. Yes, uh, much the same <laughs> myself. Uh, film, of course, is Dolomite is my name. Just to point out, that's the title of the film. My name is not Dolomite, as we've just established. My it's name Scott. is Scott. <laughs> yeah, so Eddie Murphy uh, stars as Rudy Ray Moore in this biopic of the comedian, starting off from his days as a struggling MC and record shop worker, whose career takes off once he inhabits the character of Dolomite, an obscene, rhyme-spewing, no-guff-taking pimp based on the stories the local homeless folks told to amuse each other. Betting on himself when no one else was going to, he puts out an X-rated album of his own material, selling it from the back of his car, making enough of a success for a record company to put out more widely, and repeating that success with subsequent albums. However, that's not enough for Moore to be content with, sensing a huge untapped market for comedy films aimed at African Americans, and again bets everything he has, and more, on producing a Dolomite film, despite having no experience of film production or contacts in the industry, apart from a chance meeting with Wesley Snipes' Derville Martin, already a regular in the exploitation scene, who directs. Again, there's no takers amongst the studio execs, meaning he's forced to put this out cinema by cinema, touring cities with it, until it garners enough success for the studio system to reconsider the mathematics of the situation. Dolomite would, if Wikipedia's to be trusted, make $12 million uh, from its $100,000 budget and largely ensure that Moore could continue doing what he loves for the people who loved it for the rest of his life. Black exploitation in general is a subject on our to-do list, but because we've not done it so far, I've only a passing familiarity with the likes of Shaft, and by this point I've probably seen more parodies or homages to black exploitation films mm-hmm. than actual black exploitation films, which is to say that I knew nothing of Moore's career or act, but having watched Dolomite as my name, I'm very much inspired to. Uh, Murphy here is excellent, giving the sort of performance you'd expect from the Murphy of 30 years ago, as opposed to his more, <laughs> let's politely say, patchy recent output. And awesome, from the last 28 years. <laughs> yes. Um, it's an absolutely captivating turn, and if Moore is half as magnetic, then good times are ahead. Murphy is backed up here by a great supporting cast of Divine Joy Randolph, Keegan Michael Key, Greg Robinson, Titus Burgess, and of course Snipes, and he has produced a very funny film that shows a very entertaining underdog story. Now, it's not going to redefine movie making or anything like that, but it is a really fun film and very easy to recommend. Yes, uh, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this. Uh, as I said, in the introduction, I have no familiarity with this at all beyond well, for the longest time it was just a clip from the original Dolomite film of Rudy yeah. Muir saying <laughs> bet you you've a real yeah. uh, that's um, come up in an episode of Best of the Worst before and so nothing knew nothing about it, I had no idea really what to expect but it's just it's thoroughly entertaining, it's really good hearted mm-hmm. I fear that it may be a bit hagiographical there's not really any particular yeah. downside to Rudy Raymour, and I mean, maybe that's true, but I'm a little concerned because just to go back to Red Letter Media, and I've actually mentioned it quite a few times in, in various episodes, because we enjoy them so much, Scott, isn't it? But yeah. they did an episode of Best of the Worst recently in which they looked at P.T. Wheatstraw, which is another Rudy Raymour film, and it's kind of distasteful in the way it talks about various different people, different problems, like winos and things, and it's all not particularly pleasant. Yeah. Um, none of which is really in Dolomite's my name, so I'm not sure if it's maybe kind of brushing over that bit. But for the most part, it's a very enjoyable film. Certainly, Eddie Murphy's portrayal of Moore is really appealing. And mm. when you get to the point to when they've hired Wesley Snipes' character as the director and they move into the, the Hotel Dunbar, and he basically he just fronts up because it's so... I guess humble's probably the word, mm. but like, there's no pretension about it. It's like, it's like, look, my money's at stake, but we don't know what the hell we're doing. Yeah, we're first time in it. Cut some slack, but we're going to work hard with joy. and want to learn, and I, I kind of appreciated that. I mean, yeah. as far as Dolomite's my name is concerned, that makes him a very appealing character. It's just a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of fun. It's really funny. It's warm-hearted. It's interesting because I've got so little familiarity with black exploitation, so I'm seeing a wee a wee bit of that I guess mm-hmm. it's nice to see Wesley Snipes back and doing some really good acting Yeah, <laughs> we talked in our Wesley Snipes episode recently that 
we hadn't seen, I think any of us had seen any of his stuff post-release from prison. Yes, exactly. It's generally considered to be awful. This would appear to be the, one of the first chances he's had to actually you know, do something good again. Yes. Or bear, like, it's a very minor role in one of the Expendables films, I think. Uh, I haven't seen him since then. So that's good. And you made a, a comment at the beginning of your review, Scott, that I was thinking of too. It's like, I remember saying at some point during a run as the one-liner podcast that I had been saying so long... Uh, saying, do you remember for so long? Do you remember when Eddie Murphy could act? Yes, <laughs> I've been saying that for so long to the point where I'd actually been saying that longer than any time Eddie Murphy could actually act during. <laughs> but it's nice to be reminded that you know, actually, yeah, <laughs> when he's, he's pretty entertaining. Yeah, when he's given decent material, yeah. um, and it's not you know the clumps or something, uh, <laughs> or what was that other terrible one, Dave? Or meet Dave, meet Dave. I think that's one of them. Yes, kind of like the numbskulls. Pluto and Ash. Or, yeah. Yeah, um, so yes, it's nice to see that. It's, it's just everybody in it is just so entertaining. Yeah, yeah. A couple of nice wee cameos too, like Bob Odenkirk. It's good to see him pop up and stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. Just a thoroughly entertaining <laughs> film. Chris Rock shows up playing Chris Rock. Well, not technically, but I mean, but well, yeah, may as well be. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. Um, Pleasantly surprised, didn't, like yourself, didn't really have much uh, in the way of knowledge about anything to do with it going into it, and it's probably one of the most um, entertaining films I've seen all year. Um, certainly yeah. up there among the top, so yeah. It's up there, yeah, but it's not flawless, it's not no. um, going to be like the best film of all time, but in terms of simply being very, very entertaining, yeah, and I went in with not just no preconceptions, no knowledge at all, basically. Mm. Yes. Uh, it was largely, Craig said he'd watched it. Yeah. But, Oh, I'll, I'll watch it too then. It's like, oh, this is good. That, that's the thing. It's, it's kind of nice to be surprised in that way. Yes. Um, so certainly I would recommend it. It's, it's fun. Because I was thinking back to, again, like you said, Scott, like to Blackspotation stuff, being like more familiar with parodies than anything else. Mm. It's like a, things like Undercover Brother and stuff. Yes, but, exactly. Yeah. At least this is a bit closer to the real stuff before we actually tackle one of our episodes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, a better primer, I think. So what we're saying is... It's good. You should watch it. Absolutely. Can the same be said of By the Grace of God? Perhaps. Will we see? When we get to the end of the endless screed I've written about it. <laughs> it's certainly a film that made me write a lot. Um, <laughs> so it's got that going for it. So, so, yeah. <laughs> Strap in. <laughs> uh, it would be quite reasonable to consider Francois Ozon's Grâce à Dieu, By the Grace of God, a companion piece to 2015 Spotlight, both timely and contemporary true stories of investigations into the historical actions of child-abusing clergy and, most importantly, the lack of action and accountability of the Catholic Church. Unlike Spotlight, though, By the Grace of God focuses on one priest in particular, and rather than from the point of view of journalists, it is the tale of a group of victims who came together to form a support and action group, La Parole Liberée, the liberated word. Thanks to their efforts, a criminal case was presented against the priest involved, and the cardinal who, at least by his inaction, protected him and left children in danger. The case is still ongoing, so Ozon has changed the names of... Oh no, no he didn't. (laughs) Only the names of the victims were changed. Brave, and something that landed him in hot water. About two French court rulings have gone in his favour thus far, and the film was released in France despite the attempts by the priest to block it. It also won the Silver Bear at the Berlin International Film Festival in February, something that surely discomforted the church even more. So, you know, good. (laughs) The film was shot secretly, with a fake title, in France, Grâce à Dieu now would immediately be connected with the case, and with interiors filmed in Paris, with only the exterior shot in its setting of Lyon, to minimise the chance of interference by the church and the public in a very Catholic country. The film, as I've just said, is set in Lyon, France's second city, and is told principally through three characters, all of whom were abused by Father Bernard Préat, Bernard Verlet, while members of a scout troop in the 1990s and 1980s. First is Melville Popoz Alexandre, a father of five who in middle age wants to address his unresolved trauma and seeks acknowledgement of the crime and a commitment by the church that the priest will no longer be allowed to work with children. Unlike the other two principles, Alexandre is still a devout Catholic, and his faith and trust in the church can be seen as something else stolen from him. 
Alexon's decision to press charges sets the ball rolling and causes more people to tell the story, amongst whom is her second principal character, Francois, played by Denis Menochet, who is a much fierier character who organises the group and who, frustrated with the slow criminal investigation and the church's omerta, brings the case out into the open by going to the press. And finally there's Emmanuel, Swan Arlo, who seems to have been more damaged both emotionally and potentially physically, by Father Prena's ministrations. All three want justice, but above all, they want the church to acknowledge the abuse. Notably, Prena's superior, the Archbishop of Lyon, Cardinal Philippe Barbaran, played by, here by Francois Marturé. Ozon is perhaps a somewhat unusual choice of director for this work, and the style is quite unlike his previous over. In many ways, it's quite documentarian. Indeed, he originally envisioned it as a documentary, but... While the victims spoke to him in the process of making the film, he didn't want to put them on screen. And Ozon also makes a not unreasonable assertion that such a story can have more impact as a fiction. He sets aside his usual flair and stylings for something potentially dry but actually very compelling, with a script based on actual testimonies and documents from the case which carry a real ring of truth. Much of the story and the facts of the abuses are told in a very direct manner, largely unvarnished by emotion or sentiment by the director or his actors. Instead, the words are allowed to speak for themselves, echoing, it would seem, the names of the victim's organisation, the liberated word. And words are important, perhaps most crucially, tellingly, and for the victims insultingly, those of Cardinal Barbaran who gave the film its title his Freudian slip in a press conference revealing how he felt. La majorité des faits, grâce à Dieu, sont prescrits. Or, for people listening in the same language I'm trying to speak, (laughs) the majority of cases, by the grace of God, are unprosecutable. What an asshat. (laughs) The indignation those words must surely have caused is evident in the film's tone, as well as a quiet sense of rage, something that by the grace of God shares with Spotlight. Spotlight is a more energetic film, and its characters few be more obvious, and therefore perhaps more compelling, but Watson Ozone's film undeniably carries more weight, coming from the victims themselves rather than, legitimately of course, scandalised reporters. By the grace of God is tough on those whose attitude is don't rock the boat or let bygones be got bygones, and as it should be, but non-judgmental about the many legitimate reasons for victims to come forward and testify or to not, without being, for want of a better word here, preachy. There is also commendable restraint from the actors when, given the subject, it would be very easy, and not necessarily inappropriate, to really go hard into emotion. The three principal players are all compelling, with Poupaud's stoicism balanced with Menoche's energy and motivation, both complemented by what is probably the standout performance by Swan or Lowe as the least fortunate and most damaged of the three. A man's film by necessity is this abusive priest targeted voice. There are still a number of strong supporting performances by the likes of Elaine Vanson, Aurelia Petit and Josiane Balasco as the wives or mothers of the victims. It's an important film too, and the stir it created can only be a good thing and help stop the church from once again sweeping this sort of thing under the carpet. Hmm, interesting. I've not seen an Ozone film since, what was it? In the house, in your house, something like that. In the house, yeah. yeah 2012. Um, I've seen a lot of his films, but I always liked his work uh, that I have seen, and this sounds like it will be miserable. So, uh, yeah, I'll catch up with this at some point, but I don't expect to enjoy it. <laughs> it sounds like a film I will. I will politely stew and boil in there for a couple of hours. Yeah, it's not actually miserable. I can understand why you think that. Um, it's weird. At points, it's almost uplifting, right. I guess, because. The people involved clearly found some sort of peace, I guess, mm. from going through the process. It helped them to some degree. And also because while the some of the descriptions are fairly frank, they're not graphic. Right. Which I think echo, there's a scene in the film where they're talking about what they're going to put on their website with the testimonials and things. And they specifically choose not to be hugely graphic and even the the word that comes up quite a lot rather than penis is sex. Right. Like, he touched my sex. And it's clearly very deliberately chosen. They want, because they say it, and while it's, it's wrong for people to not read these things because of that, they're right in this when they say that, you know, people don't want to read these things. So they try yeah. to keep it, the, the language deliberately neutral. Mm-hmm. 
so I think the, the script is clearly informed by how they really chose to do it in real life. So it makes it actually not... I mean, not that you're in any under any illusion about what happened. Yeah. But because of the slightly less provocative, perhaps, language... Right. It doesn't sound as miserable as it might. And while it deals with a really horrible topic, it's not... It's not miserable, actually, to think about it. It's, it's really not... I mean, it's, it's not traditionally enjoyable. And, like, you're not entertained <laughs> yeah. by it. Right? Yeah. But it's... For the topic it covers, it could be a lot more harrowing, and it kind of isn't. As I say, it's it part of actually quite uplifting, which is quite an interesting take on that kind of topic. Yes, that's quite intriguing. Oh, um, I'd be even more interested now, so... Yeah, it's definitely worth checking out. I, I would do... I think this is the first... Ozone film. I've seen, oh no, I've, I feel I've seen something recently actually with Ozone, but before that it was the last time I was playing House, which I really like as well actually. Mm-hmm. But I've liked his stuff. Swimming pool's really good as well. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's, it's so different in style from films like that because there's a lot of his films have quite a lot of kind of like wry humour in them, and there are some of these kind of genre shifts and stuff. This is more just kind of straight down the middle. Right. In terms of like, like, just like he's picked a path and he follows along and just lets the story play out. So I guess if you're a quality filmmaker, you can do a lot of different genres. This is why I say it is a kind of it's weird to associate Francois on with this kind of film. Yeah, but it's a, it's a very good film. It's very well made and it's sensitively made. He doesn't doesn't shy away from talking about what happened, but doesn't sensationalise either, which right. would have been another easy thing to do. I think. Yeah, definitely worth checking out. Rewarding film. Good, good. Okay, so we're going to move on to something that's not so much rewarding as exceedingly, what's the word, crap. Um, just to give away my thoughts on it, Scott. Spoilers! <laughs> yeah, so this is uh, Midsommar, and now this podcast is apparently hosted by the only people in the world who thought that Hereditary was a steaming dung heap of a film. So quite why we are subjecting ourselves to Ari Aster's follow-up feature, Midsommar is a question that would perhaps only reveal the levels of self-loathing we have, rather than <laughs> any kind of optimism that this would be any less steaming donkey-like. So let's not go there. Yes, again, um, name of this podcast, not accidental. <laughs> yes, yes let, let's go instead to Florence Pugh's Danny Ardor, a PhD student in a strange relationship with Jack Rayner's Christian Hughes, who tells his friends that he's looking for an escape strategy. However, tragedy gets in first with Danny's sister committing suicide, and taking her parents with her. Still reeling from this, she nonetheless accepts an invitation to accompany Christian and his friends on a trip to Sweden, those friends being William Jackson Harper's Josh, Will Poulter's Mark, and finally Wilhelm Bongren's Pell, the Swede whose village we will be visiting. A village that immediately looks like a creepy murder cult, and, well, is a creepy murder cult, just one infused with Nordic folklore rather than whatever was going on in hereditary. Witchcraft? I forget and don't care enough to look it up. Look, Satan. Yeah. Satan worship, I think. Look, I'm not going to talk all that much more about this because, well, I suspected it wasn't anything I'd like going into it and I'd had enough of a flavour from it from yourself and Craig to confirm that it wasn't anything I'd like. <laughs> and so it was no surprise when this became something I didn't like in short <laughs> enough order. Now, I rather wish this was a drama rather than a horror because I, I like a lot of Astor's visuals and pacing and there's some solid character work early doors and I like the actors that are playing them. However, they're just put in such a stupid uh, situation that there's no point caring about them. I mean, why on earth would I spend even a fraction of a second trying to get involved in a conflict between Christian and Josh's ownership of subject matter for the thesis when we've already seen someone's face being staved in graphically with a mallet and they're just waiting for the same thing to happen to other protagonists? And am I supposed to be reading something deeper into the state of Christian and Danny's relationship or relationships in general in the final reels when both are just mashed off their Tits and psilocybins. Why on earth would I do any of that? <laughs> Look, not every film has to be for me. That's fine. I have no clue who this film would actually be for, but the box office indicates that it's quite a lot of you. So shine on, you crazy diamonds, but you are <laughs> mysteries to me. Vive la différence, but go and vive somewhere away from me. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, um, checked out of this fairly early on, to be honest with you. It's not my cup of tea, and uh, yeah, so it is of no value for me, and if you do get value out of it, more power to you, but uh, yes, of of no interest to me. Which, as I say, a shame because a lot of the cast I really like. But yeah, this is a waste of them. Yeah, um, as I as I sort of gave away, I didn't like this film, and again, didn't expect to like this film. But you know, I keep trying, I keep trying, Scott, and I don't know why. <laughs> it's just apparently, and I don't see this in this film at all. Was it? 
I think Ari Aster could probably be a really good DOP. I think he's a terrible director and writer. Mm. Uh, because the film looks lovely. Yes. And actually, I found myself, I caught myself, in fact, thinking a couple of times through the film. Well, it's quite well made. And I'm thinking, yeah, but the craps that bear in the cage there makes are probably quite well made. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I have any interest in them, um, or should have any interest in them. Yeah, it's apparently, it's actually an allegory for the extended operatic breakup of a relationship. And yep. I heard that and immediately thought, yep, do one. Yes. No, it isn't. <laughs> so apparently it's an allegory for an extended breakup of a um, failing relationship and that Ari Aster is apparently not actually interested in the cults. So why did you make a two and a half hour film about one? Yes. It goes on forever. <laughs> and yet, actually... Let, let, let's set aside the really tired trope of people with mental illness becoming murderers because mm. that's not been done to death but that that opening 30 minutes of or maybe 20 minutes of what happens to Florence Pugh's character's family Danny's yeah. family yeah you turn that into drama yeah that could be interesting but no turns out it's actually got nothing to do with anything that happens in the rest of the film mm-hmm. I mean really it doesn't it's irrelevant and basically, the first 30 minutes, it's almost like 29, 30 minute mark, is when they arrive in Sweden and they take this, their first um, magic mushrooms and they start their first trip, right? Everything before that, every single thing that happens before that is dispensable. It's just... Yeah. And the, the rest of it is like, this is so bad. And there's some kind of like, meant to be horrific bits later on, and I kind of get them, but there are other bits in the film where clearly they're just going for horrific and I'm thinking but you're missing the point it's like you have these two people who do something that's quite clearly going to be what they're doing the the two older people Scott yeah I don't want to spoil it for anybody who does want to see it um also get help (laughs) but um yeah there are these there's two characters in the film who clearly are going to do an act and when they do it it's absolutely no surprise to me because you know I've got a working brain cell Hmm. But what's really horrific or frightening about that scene is what they do. But then they show these, like, hideous dummies of the aftermath. And, mm-hmm. like, yeah, but that, you're just putting in the time. Shock people. It's so gratuitous and necessary. Because, like, later on, like, violence might be a thing that's meant to be horrific. In that scene, I actually know the horrific thing is the act. Yeah. Not how they look or anything like that. It's, ah, yes. It's just so boring and it has nothing to say. And it goes on forever. Yeah. No, um, I don't know why I tried to discover how much I hated Hereditary. And I keep seeing people talk about how uh, Tony Collette was a powerhouse performance. And I'm like, am I taking crazy pills? Because she was awful. It was laughable. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's some scenes in midsummer that look really nice. Yeah, uh, okay. That's all the positives I have to say about it. Yeah. <laughs> This didn't make me angry like Hereditary did. It's just like, okay, uh, fine, whatever. And I uh, checked out. And, um, this yeah, is just too boring for that, too, I think. Yeah. Too dull, yeah. Um, it's like The Wicker Man with all the interesting bits taken out. <laughs> There's not... Yeah. yeah. Yeah, lots of... Not a great deal happening. And that should really be in, in sort of service of building some suspense, but it just kind of doesn't. I just couldn't bring myself to care about any of it. So, nope. Yeah, um... And there's nothing original in it. I, I knew exactly every turn the film was going to take. Yeah. Every single one is it's it's really obvious. Yeah. And a lot of it's actually also really on the nose in terms of characters. The, the characters aren't particularly interesting either. Yeah. But yes, yeah, so yeah, you've got one guy who's he's a kind of crappy boyfriend, but it doesn't really merit anything that happens and it's like eh. Yeah. Like it's a morality <laughs> tale and doesn't work either. It's just it's boring. Yeah. And you can pretty much guess everything that's going to happen as soon as they po- walk through the um, like arch, from the, the coming into the forest, and everyone's doing their doing their weird hugs and weird dresses. Like, okay, yep, I see what's happening here. Turn around, go, home. don't don't stay. <laughs> bad things are going to happen, and you could pretty much guess what those bad things were going to be. Yes, no good. Yeah, so honestly, it wasn't guessing. I knew. Mm-hmm. I was absolutely no doubt. I was one hundred percent correct. It's not like I think this was like I know how it's, it's going to play out. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, it's, it's rubbish. Yes, let's not waste any more time on it. Eh? Um, I think the only thing I didn't predict was the fancy dress because of the, the particular fancy dress at the end of one character, um, the, <laughs> the, the, the brown one, um, <laughs> because that was beyond stupid. Yes. Um, I couldn't predict that, that was too dumb. <laughs> yes, but let's move on, as you say. Yes, 
to a, a slight break in, in continuity, so we go to Diego Maradona, which is <laughs> very difficult to relate back to Midsummer in any meaningful sense, so let's not bother. That's when the World Cup happens. Yes. <laughs> Senna and Amy director Asif Kapadia's latest film begins, unexpectedly, with a car chase. Flying through the streets of a city, we'll later come to learn that it's Naples, in pursuit of a hatchback. It's unassuming transport for its occupant. The then world's most expensive footballer and one-off, and by many considered the most gifted exponent of his sport ever to grace the pitch, Diego Armando Maradona. The stylings of the film's title, with Diego and Maradona separated typographically and in colour, is no accident and is beyond simply a reference to the colours of the flag of the subject's country. This is a tale of two people, the shy but enormously gifted Diego from humble beginnings in the slums of Via Fiorito outside of Buenos Aires, and Maradona, the womanising, cocaine-addicted, mafia-associating global superstar. Constructed in a manner very similar to his earlier sporting documentary Senna, with audio from contemporary interviews played over archive footage, Capadia's Maradona documentary addresses the dichotomy of these two personas, and, focusing on the period roughly from his transfer to FC Barcelona to the fallout from his betrayal of Napoli for daring to beat Italy while playing for his country in the 1990 World Cup, many sports fans of course being a very particular type of stupid, (laughs) tries to explain the rise of Maradona and the diminishing of Diego. In terms of general tone and structure, Diego Maradona is not particularly distinct from many sporting documentaries, and there would probably be enough of interest in there to satisfy an interest in the player. What does set it apart, though, is in being uncommonly perspicacious about its subject, being very effective at getting to the heart of, cliched a term as it may be, this flawed genius. A hagiography this is most certainly not, and too many sporting documentaries are precisely that, but for all the wars shown, there is an often a counterpoint that shows why Maradona made, or perhaps was forced to make, the choices he did. Capadia doesn't offer expiation to this footballing god, and in certain locales he is just that. But while he undoubtedly hurt people, more often it was himself that he hurt, and the film doesn't set out to excoriate him, but only to try to explain him. One moment in particular sticks out to me, as a clearly terrified Maradona is mobbed in his arrival at a Buenos Aires airport and his return from having won the World Cup in Mexico. A moment that illustrates that his experiences truly weren't like those of most other people. How this plays for non-football fans I cannot guess, although hopefully Scott will be able to fill me in. And while I would have preferred more demonstration of his skill on the pitch, I found this an engaging and interesting insight into one of the greatest practitioners of the beautiful game. Yeah, this does sort of tie into the near decade or so we're actually paying any kind of attention to football as well. So <laughs> it's perhaps not completely uh, ignorant of it. And look, if nothing else, this film shows England getting beat. So it's always got that going for it. Uh, no, quite enjoyed this. Uh, very easy to watch. Um, lovely little sort of scrapbook style going throughout it. I don't know how much insight I really got into Diego Maradona as a person through this. Yeah. Enough, but it's not like a hugely deep dive into his psyche or anything like that. But it's a really entertaining way of um, looking at the window of really absolutely extraordinary happenings that happened to this guy uh, over the course of his the heyday of his career. And, yeah, I think uh, maybe more of an insight into his life and what surrounded him rather than him would be a better way to put it. I think. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, and it, certainly it's a, it's a really entertaining, really easy watch. Lots of things that probably never really picked up on before though I didn't have any huge interest in Diego Maradona before that um, obviously I know he's knew of his talents on the field but I never really paid much attention to what was going on outside so I didn't really know any of these uh, connections with the the Kamora and all that kind of stuff interesting to see how it would tie in with the current Netflix series that's going on with us when they're talking about stint when he's managing the one of the Mexican teams where he's probably in about about as much uh, hot water with the uh, Sinaloa cartels as well for that, so he's probably transferring that life experience uh, to Mexico as well. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because it's it's just such an interesting uh, character who's had so many interesting things happen to him. I mean, it's absolutely remarkable the the, the adulation that he was he was met with, and uh, seeing just a fraction of that in this film is uh, really quite shocking and surprising, and uh, made for a very entertaining watch. I guess, you know, say, so like it, it kind of coincides with the 
one point in time you did have sort of any knowledge of football Scott but mm. so it was a largely person who doesn't if not dislikes football doesn't care mm. I guess you were able to get something out of it I would think so um Certainly, it's, uh, as, as you mentioned, it's not so much about the football. You don't really see an awful lot of football going on in it. Um, it's more about the the reaction around his uh, his stardom. Um, it, it, this could be a, a film about Miley Cyrus or something. It would be the same sort of uh, adulation, sort of like the, the absolutely terrifying, um, as we say, like godlike status that he's held in uh, during this, this term so yeah it's an ordinary human being trying to deal with something that is quite truly extraordinary uh, uh, it's a, so in that regard I think it's probably more relevant and easier to watch for anyone who's not a sporting fan than anything like ooh, Senna or any of these other films mm-hmm. um, yeah just just remarkable um, remarkable times and it's a very entertaining watch I think actually I mean you say Miley Cyrus I know you're joking but <laughs> You get some people who are clearly like fans flock around wherever they go, and it can be quite scary for them too. But mm. they're even whatever world they're in, if it's like music or film or something, you know, there are probably still several people, um, and that mm. kind of spreads around a little. Whereas I think it's kind of hard to comprehend how that must feel for him, given first an entire city. Yeah. I mean, almost literally an entire city and then an entire country yeah. focuses on <laughs> one person Yeah, you know that that's really that scene that I mentioned in the airport in Buenos Aires after the World Cup he's he's clearly frightened for his life yes <laughs> and that's just in like inside the airport he's not even got out yet he's just like can we say walking down the walkway from the like the where the bags come out or something it's, yeah. yeah it's terrifying to have that sort of expectation and pressure put on you plus the fear for your life and then also the way that because people always take these things too far that clearly there's a sense that people feel some kind of ownership over him yeah yeah and it doesn't matter you say oh, you only kicks a ball for living or people only like act it's like it's doesn't mean it's all right for people to feel that way when you don't do anything important or effectively important but mm. at least the Beatles had three other people to talk to about it whereas uh, yeah, there's that or Maradona's yeah. by himself yeah <laughs> yeah and if, if you're basically fetted around the world and it's like there's just you yeah uh, yeah it's that's quite a thing to deal with so why well, you could judge him for taking cocaine because it's a foolish thing because it's not like anybody's ever any doubt of where that leads yes but when you see the incredible pressure you must be under every day you can't like walk anywhere and and just to be mobbed by people and all expecting things from him mm-hmm. um you can see why you would do that. Yes. <laughs> you, see, you would need some way to get away from that, to release that tension. So, yeah. So, I mean, you're right, and it doesn't perhaps get much into his personality, and uh, it doesn't touch on his politics or anything, but again, it's, it's one film. Um, it's yeah. like a, a whole man's life and a very popular and influential man. Uh, but it does a really good picture of just, like, what his life is like, the pressures he must have been under. Yes, Clearly, acting like an asset in many cases, you know, you're <laughs> denying your child, that's pretty low down in um, the things you can do, you know, it's it's a pretty horrible thing. But the other stuff, absolutely, you can understand it, so... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I can think of no way to get to the next film at all, so the man who killed Don Quixote, Scott. <laughs> Was not to deal Maradona, at the end of the day, a man? Um, right. The man does he not speak Spanish? <laughs> yes, the man who killed Don Quixote. Uh, there's a history to this film, a long one. So much so that if we delve into it, we'd be here all day. And we've covered a lot of that previously when we were talking about Lost in La Mancha back in our Films on Film episode. So let's just say that it's storied and full of disappointment for Terry Gilliam. It's a pleasure then that it's finally finished and yet somehow unsurprising that legal wrangling entirely ruined its release. The full story is much more complex, but so is the plot summary, so we'll crack on with that. Uh, Hollywood's favourite entirely computer-generated character, Adam Driver, here plays Toby Grisoni, an obnoxious commercial director, struggling to shoot an ad featuring Don Quixote and Sancho Panza out in the Spanish sticks. He's lorded over by the boss, Stellan Sarsgaard, and lusted after by the boss's wife, Olga Kurlenko's Jackie. 
chancing upon an exceedingly rare copy of a student film he shot in a small village in the area some ten years ago called The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, Toby's inspired to head over and see what's happened there since then. It is not altogether positive on a number of levels, or any level really, but chiefly the concern here is about noted non-Spaniard Jonathan Price's shoemaker Javier, who now believes himself to be the Don Quixote that Toby cast him as all those years ago. Through some hijinks that would, I feel, be a little too convoluted to explain, Toby finds himself a suspect in a police investigation into a fire he and Javier unwittingly caused and winds up on the run with Javier, who believes Toby to be his squire, Sancho Panzer. In a combination of flashbacks, real-time and fever dreams, we will tease out more of these characters and the events of all involved, particularly Toby's involvement with Joanna Ribeiro's Angelica, a young girl at the time of the previous film that's had a troubled life since, now finding herself in an abusive relationship with the very same Russian magnet that Toby's boss is to ingratiate himself with. Now, it took me a little while to warm with this film, to be honest. Uh, maybe the first half hour, 45 minutes, I was kind of fearing the worst, but in what appears to be the inverse of most critical opinions, the longer and more outlandish it got, the more invested I got with this. <laughs> and while it's not the masterpiece that the gestation period that this would perhaps demand that it be, if it wasn't to be disappointing, it's nonetheless a very solidly enjoyable film. Price and Driver are excellent, as are all the supporting cast, and as you perhaps expect from Gilliam, his imagination conjures up some exceptional imagery. Um, I do feel a little cheated about not having had a chance to see this in a cinema. Um, I think more than any number of blockbusters we've seen in the past few years, this would have benefited from a grander canvas than my telly can provide, given how the epic sweeps of the story and landscape are combined. Uh, Now, I shan't wither on too much other than to say that by then my doubts were vanquished and I was quite touched by the ending. Uh, Certainly it's one of the most distinctive films I've seen this year and a must-see for anyone interested in Gilliam's body of work. Now, of course, it would have been regardless of quality, uh, but I'm pleased to report that it's a pleasure and not a chore to get through it. Uh, yes, uh, took a bit of a slow start, but uh, it got there in the end. I was quite enjoying it by the end of the end of the film. As I say, with this much weight of expectation and 20 years of history behind it, it's, to the degree it was always going to under-deliver on that promise, but uh, mm. nonetheless, uh, still quite an enjoyable film. It's not one of Gilliam's best, to be honest, but it's certainly pretty good. Yeah, I'm largely good with Scott and I was a little trepidatious about this because, mm. again, of the the bad res, um, reviews that had come out after its release at Cannes, mm. and I thought, yeah, th- there's always a thing of like you've waited so long for this, you know the story behind us, having seen Lost in La Mancha, and like it can't possibly live up to that. Yeah, and I'm worried it would just be an absolute mess. Yeah, but it's not. It suffers perhaps a little from being a little. A little autobiographical, perhaps, um, which is not the word I'm looking for, but it'll do. And yeah. um, it's, it's a bit sort of kind of self-referential. There are clearly references to his troubles making it. Yes. They're not too frequent, though. So, I mean, it could have been a problem, but I don't think it is. Um, I was just aware of them. Yes. Rather than being bothered by them. Uh, and there are a few lines that are very on the nose. I'm sure that line near the end about when Stellan Skarsgård says that uh, it's the only month of the year, basically you're guaranteed no rain or something. Yes, yes, I'm yes. sure that's a reference to <laughs> it's got through, yeah. his production being washed out by rain, which is basically what killed it. Yeah. And that's set the ball rolling of everything going wrong there. Um, it's his first attempt to make this. So yeah, it's there's maybe one or two moments too many of that, but for the most part, it's fine. It's just um, if you don't know the backstory, I think you probably don't get that, so yeah. it probably isn't a problem. Beyond that, it's just really entertaining. There are a couple of moments of kind of sketchy CGI. One right near the start, actually, when Adam Driver's filming his commercial, uh, when his his original Don Quixote gets taken up by the windmill, and I thought, that looks really dodgy, that's bad CGI. And then I immediately followed that with, I thought, I bet Scott's going to make a reference about Adam's Driver being CGI. <laughs> Always. <laughs> wasn't, Always. Wasn't disappointed, Scott, <laughs> thank you. Uh, uh, yeah, everybody in it's really good as well. Jonathan Price actually, I think, does a really good job. I'm not yes. convinced by Spanish accent, but actually, just his performance is really good. And then there's enough clear study has gone into that that he sort of mispronounces just enough sounds in his English that is absolutely believable as the occasional mistake yeah. a Spanish speaker speaking English would make. So there's just enough of them to just make that there's a wee ring of authenticity there. It's yeah. like, and, and at the very least, you appreciate the work that's gone into it. Yeah. You hear something like that, that it's, it's not like you're... Because it's so easy to do the kind of like joke Italian accent or something like that. But yeah. no, this has had a lot more thought and work put into it. It's like just the occasional syllable or sound will just be 
just on pronounceable like Spanish than English, and it's they're peppered here and there. And I, I like the the care that's gone into that. Yes, uh, Adam Driver's really really good, which is you know probably the best CGI character since Gollum. Yes. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so it's not brilliant. You're right. It's not Terry Gilliam's best work, though far from his worst. It's Generally, very entertaining film, and I really enjoyed watching it. Um, yeah, it's a lovely little shaggy dog story. Um, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. it's not got anything to say. I don't think it's more like a flight of fancy, mm-hmm. um, and it's a lot of fun. Yes, it's very entertaining. So, yeah, definitely a good one for that. Okay, we'll round things off with uh, the film that's on everyone's lips: Joker. Yes, uh, a film that has taken over a billion dollars. Yes. Uh, Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> I don't think anybody expected that, particularly given its initial reviews. Given how much everyone heard this concept and went, that's ridiculous, <laughs> that will yes. never make any money. And, uh, well, who's laughing now? Who's laughing now? It's probably Joaquin Phoenix, but all the wrong moments. Yes. <laughs> Glorification of violence. It'll spark an incel terrorist uprising. <laughs> Won't somebody think of the children? <laughs> Blame Canada. Uh, the breathless hyperbole and moral panic of the usual oxygen thieves, and the vast majority of whom haven't, of course, seen Todd Phillips' Joker, a film that is more like Occupy Wall Street with Dick and Jane, yes. with a large side order of criticism and adequate mental health services. Director Phillips, working from a script penned by himself and Eight Mile and the Fighter scribe Scott Silver, is probably not the obvious choice for this origin tale of Batman's nemesis having made his name with the Hangover trilogy and the Ben Stiller starring Starsky and Hutch. But it's also not your obvious comic book film. So much so, in fact, that its links to the world of Batman are fairly tenuous, and the fact that the set in Gotham City at all is largely incidental to the events and characters. Joker here is Arthur Fleck, played by Joaquin Phoenix, and Arthur Fleck is a clown. This... (laughs) naturally is a problem as far as relatability goes, as clowns are endlessly crap and their talent has no beginning. (laughs) However, since he's not much good at clowning anyway, he'll get the pass for now. Arthur is a sad case, suffering from various mental health problems, including an unfortunate condition that causes him to laugh uncontrollably at things not in the least amusing. He also harbours ambitions of being a stand-up comic, but lacks certain crucial skills like knowing when to laugh or how jokes work. Hmm. (laughs) He is beaten up by the world, more than once literally so, and uh, also beaten up by a failing social system and mocked by those he looks up to. A series of events in this relentlessly awful world, including a run-in with one Thomas Wayne, begin to chip away at Fleck's fragile personality until he snaps and gets all stabby and shooty and whatnot. (laughs) before finally becoming the Joker. On leaving the cinema after seeing Joker, I heard someone say to his friend, he's good, but he's no Heath Ledger. And that's true, but not for the reason I think the guy meant. Joaquin Phoenix is excellent, and he may in fact be better than Heath Ledger, but the roles are so different there's simply no valid point of comparison. Ledger's Joker, as well as being better written and more interesting, was in a very different, much better film. Joker isn't bad by any means, but it suffers from vague plotting and world building, and a lot of ideas inadequately fleshed out or joined up. But Phoenix so elevates the material he has to work with, and makes the film considerably better than it otherwise would be. He's excellent, and it really takes a great performance to make sympathetic a character who's both a murderer and a clown. (laughs) It took a while for me to get into Joker... Not that it's bad, as I said, but the first half of the film in particular is a bit loose and incoherent. There's an anti-one-percenters riot that comes out of pretty much nowhere, with an inciting incident that, even had it been in an atmosphere that had been established as highly charged, is not really a believable spark. And commentary on social services and mental health is far from fully formed. The final act, though, is another matter entirely, and it has an energy that at least fills you into thinking that the previous two acts were building to it. Comparisons to Scorsese's Taxi Driver and the King of Comedy are not only apt, but clearly intended, attested to by the presence of Robert De Niro as Arthur's Jerry Langford-esque idol, Murray Franklin, and the film's late 70s, early 80s setting, though sadly it's not of the quality of Scorsese's work. Comic book origin stories are beyond passé, 
and then to make an origin story in 2019 for a character who's most interesting when those origins are entirely mysterious and unknown, hmm. witness Heath Ledger's Joker, is bold at best and possibly foolish. Yet, I really enjoyed Joker, and I prefer to have more comic book films, which we are, obviously, <laughs> then I welcome more like this. Thoughtful, restrained, by comparison at least, and character-focused. This is how you do dark, Mr. Snyder. Not just, you know, making everyone scowl and desaturating everything. And not one cent spent on moustache removal. <laughs> yes, not as good as Jared Leto, though, is he? Um, <laughs> oh, not not as many gold teeth, so, yeah, not as good. Just try to check, what was the budget of Joker again? It's, it wasn't um, too... Between 30 and 50 million I read earlier today, I think. Yeah, now, see... I like Joker well enough. Let's, I'll, I'll get that out of the way. Um, I got the end of it. I, I quite enjoyed it. Uh, the, the more I think about it, maybe the I don't know if it's the less I like it or the more holes you can start poking into it. Just like you were saying with the, the earlier acts being a bit turgid and um, yeah, it, it, it taking a little while to, to meander to where it actually gets to in the end. I agree with all you're saying about the, the character of Joker as well. But what really annoys me about this this film is that, that aside from it being related broadly to comic book characters, this is a sort of drama that you used to be able to see about 20 to 30 times in a summer over the course of a, a cinema-going period because there would be lots of mid-budget films like this being made by studios, whereas now, because everything's either no-budget indie stuff or massively budgeted uh, yep. comic book blockbusters, this it's is... middle ground. Yeah, this stands out only because it's the only one that's been made in the last ten years or something like that, you know what I mean? Um, and, and most... If, if this film was released, like, 10, 15, 20 years ago, it would be still fine, but it would be sort of bubbling around in the middle of a pack of similar adult dramas, and I don't think it would have been all that um, remarkable. It's just the landscape we find it in, where it's now somehow taking on that mantle uh, of being a a kind of mid-budget risk for a, a studio that's paid off very well, so no doubt it will be beaten to death by copycats in the coming uh, coming months coming months and years um, that's perhaps the one thing that annoys me it's a bit more meta, uh, the meta discussion about the film itself rather than the film itself which is perfectly adequate and um, yeah, hell of a performance by uh, your phoenix boy who uh, really does tie the whole film together and without him it would be a mess and waste of everyone's time I think uh, yeah, It's really hard to imagine working with anybody but him he's just he's yeah. does such a good job of that Hugely committed performance and uh, it really does work um, yeah, All credit to him, he's made it work and uh, it really does uh, does tie together well and it, it deserves the success I think it's in a world where in a world where comic book films tend to merge into each other you say this is a way to take it into a to explore different tonality than you can expect from Marvel and most of the mainline uh, DC stuff, as you say, mm-hmm. Snyder. Snyder has the ideas, but he's tying them into the wrong characters. Uh, you know, you, I don't think you can't make some kind of um, darker exploration of Superman, but I just don't think most people want to see it, and that's partly why it uh, has a somewhat dodgy reputation for Man of Steel and um, Batman vs Superman, whereas if you did it with something like a character that is by nature dark, it does, it's a bit, it, there's a bit less dissonance there. It does tend to work a bit better. And uh, yeah, I think that's played out here. Joker is good and I enjoyed it. I liked, I liked all the acting that was in it and that um, the story itself and the, the actual origin of it, I, I'm not hugely convinced by it. If you, if you write the plot out and read it, it's like it doesn't sound particularly believable. Um, so that's perhaps a little bit on the weak, weaker side. But yeah, when you're sitting there watching it, that tends not to be quite so much of a, a concern. And uh, as you alluded to at the start of it, the, the discussion around it is not worth talking about Um most people are wrong about it. So, any, Most people are idiots. Yes, anyone who formed an opinion of it before actually seeing of it, it turns out was wrong about it. Who could have predicted? Oh, wait, yeah, everyone. Who'd have thunk it? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I take your point too. I mean, we've mentioned it before. It's like there's, there's so little middle ground anymore. It's like, mm. yeah, it's big budget or no budget. And it's, and I mean, I don't, what I don't know is whether this film's commercial success is because 
because it's still in the comic book realm because that's what makes all the money nowadays. Yeah. Or whether it's actually indicative of a thirst for that sort of drama, the exactly the sort of thing you're saying doesn't exist anymore, mm-hmm. at least in any scale. Um, and I kind of hope it's that, in which case, if it is that, I hope they take the right lesson. Yes. And maybe we see, not, I don't mean the copycats of this, like you're worried about, but just like that sort of level of budget and like a good character drama, um, just, I mean, they exist, obviously they exist. Um but just in terms of like being able to see one in a cinema and the, and to get that kind of buzz or anything, it doesn't yeah. happen anymore. Yeah. So I'm hoping that maybe that shows there's some sort of thirst in the marketplace for that sort of thing, and maybe they can start eking back in. Yes. We live in hope. Yeah, and it's it's worth watching for Phoenix alone. Yes. Yes. It's one of those insanely committed method acting roles that just. I don't think are worth it. Um, that's why <laughs> yes. sometimes like, CGI stuff's more like it's, it's, But if you've seen Christian Bale and the Machinist, it's yeah. of that level of weight loss. It's just, it's, and it's not healthy. No. Uh, and for something as silly as play acting, um, <laughs> it's not worth it. It's not worth it. You're risking your life, mate. But, for for um, literally clowning around, yes. yes. It's not worth it. Uh, but uh, yeah, so one of those daft committee roles that Phoenix um, specialises in. And, Certainly, I enjoyed his performance in this much more than something, say, like The Master, which I'm still disappointed by all these years later. I expect yeah. so much more from P.T. Anderson. But yeah, it's, it's absolutely worth it for him alone. And he papers over a lot of the cracks in the early stage. And then just that final third, that last act, I just thought was really fantastic. Yeah. Um, and it's the bits leading up to that that aren't great. Yeah, it is worth sitting through the first whatever it would be, hour 90 minutes or whatever, just to get to the uh, the scenes of the studio and th- that little dialogue between him and De Niro. Uh, yeah. Very well handled. It's, really, it's basically the point it becomes a joker. When you yeah. see him putting on the white paint, it's, from that point onwards, it's just it's really, really great. And yeah, Phoenix is great throughout the film. So yeah. Yeah, for that point of view, it's worth it. Even though he's playing a clown, which normally <laughs> I just wouldn't tolerate that sort of nonsense. <laughs> yes. If it was funny, clowns wouldn't be doing it. <laughs> As Terry Pratchett oft observed. Yes. Right. Guess that's your lot then. Anything else to add, Scott? Uh, no. No, I think that's it. Yes, uh, we will be back in a few days with some other podcasts on topics to be determined. Uh, but until that time, if you want to get in touch with us with feedback on this or any other episode, then please do so through a variety of vectors. Uh, why not Twitter? At Fuds on Film. Why not Facebook? Facebook.com slash Fuds on Film. You have plenty of reasons why not Facebook, Scott. Yes. Oh, email at podcast at fudsonfilm.com. Yeah. So, until next time, take care of yourself and each other. I shall be Juju, and I'm sure that Drew shall do too. Hasta luego. Hasta luego.